Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. On today's episode, I'm with Dave Lee, one of the most respected voices in the testosterone optimization space. Dave is the founder of Advanced Fundamental Health, a coaching company that specializes in hormone replacement therapy and health optimization. He has also written a great book for men out there wanting to learn more about hormones. It's called TRT 101, and I'll link that in the show notes. Dave is also a moderator in the TRT and Hormone Optimization Group on Facebook that I'm a part of. So some of the listeners I know are part of that group as well. So you might recognize his name from there. Dave lives in Europe. And so I appreciate him tuning in. It's I think he said 6pm there. It's 10am our time here in St. Louis. So Dave, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with this TRT Facebook group. Okay. It can be pretty entertaining at times. I think there's guys that ask a lot of good questions in there. But then I see some of the responses are like, completely rogue and guys are chiming in that have experience of like an N of one, just them, or maybe it's not even that. Maybe they, maybe they heard it from a friend and they talk in such the affirmative. They're so convinced on how they're answering these guys questions. And they have guys in the group like you and Gil and Dr. Grant who have so much experience in this. I wish they would kind of a lot of times leave some of these answers to you. I text Dr. Grant all the time. I'm like, I don't know how you deal with some of this whenever the thread starts to starts to get a little wild. So first, I want to say really appreciate your time in those groups and taking the time to respond to those guys. What are your thoughts on that TRT Facebook group that we're a part of? Ooh, that's a good question. No one's asked me that before. (laughs) I think on my lunch break at my old job when I was bored and I'd probably just chime in with a few things when the group was quite small. And my good friend, Danny Bossa, who used to uh, be one of the moderators of the group, he just called me one day and never spoken to him before. And he was like, who the fuck are you? And I was like, (laughs) what I'm I'm interested in. He's like, look, like we need some more people to moderate this just to keep the discussion on track to make sure that people are actually getting the right answers because there's a whole exactly. bunch of Facebook groups. And back then it was like, there was a lot more forums. The Facebook groups weren't really as popular back in the day. One of the big problems was people would go on there and they'd get a bunch of bad information and bad advice. A lot of the time people who were meaning very well, but just didn't know what on earth they were talking about. And people would end up doing more harm than good. And this was something that I see a lot in my consultations is a very common narrative that presents to me is, Hi, this was going on, and then I went on Facebook, and I made this post, and this guy told me to do this, and now I'm fucked. (laughs) And this happens all all the time. This group's very important for me, one, because it built essentially my career. The videos that I put on that TRT and Hormone Optimization channel are what led to me doing what I'm doing now, so I'm very grateful to that group, which is why whenever I have free time, especially if I'm in a situation where people aren't speaking English, and I just pull out my phone and jump on and put a few comments up, or a long car drive here and there, and... It's a good way to be able to give back to the community. I think it's important to be able to make as much of this information readily available and or free when possible. But I think the other caveat to that and the part that people really need to understand, and I think that there is more understanding coming to this now, is that back when the group started, or back when I first started in the group, it was very much an educational platform. It was we would talk about concepts and ideas and 
we would have discussions around certain things. Whereas now what I see is a lot of the time people go on Facebook groups and they want free personalized medical advice, which is not only ridiculously entitled, but it's actually impossible to get personalized medical advice when people don't know a single thing about you. And you give them two pieces of information and expect you to solve a problem that your doctor couldn't <laughs> solve. So that's not. This can be where I think groups can degenerate because people will join a group and then they won't contribute to a community and then they'll expect the world and then they'll piss off and go to whatever else. So I think that it's a shame, but I think also as internet culture becomes more centralized in modern society, I think that there's just going to be more of that coming to pass. And I think the great thing about all the other moderators in that group and, and Dr. Stephen Devos for keeping it together is that that group is very heavily moderated by a bunch of guys who know what they're doing as, as well as me. If it wasn't for all those guys giving up countless hours of their spare time and probably about 10% of their mental health, I don't think that group would be able to be operating as well as it is. So I think it's a great group. And if anyone's not in it, TRT and Hormone Optimization Channel, and there's a YouTube attached to it, which I think has almost got 100,000 subs now, which is crazy. Yeah, literally the time that you guys have to put into that on the responses, because I literally get worn out and I just get on there and respond here and there. If I have a few minutes, like you're saying, I'll get on and try to contribute. But then it's amazing the people that then want to pile on to your comment that don't have any experience or expertise in this field. And then it just wears you out because now you're on this hamster wheel of trying to explain it 10 different ways. They're rude a lot of times or they're, they're so convinced that they're right that there's no other way. And I'm like, like I said, I'm always texting Dr. Grant. I'm like, clap, round of applause for you for taking the time and really giving detailed responses to these guys. It's 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 really incredible that that you guys are doing that for free. So the patients that are listening that are part of that group really should be appreciative of your guys' time there. So speaking of that group, I want to ask a f- you a few of those questions that I've recently seen in that group that kind of pop up from time to time. But to your point, a lot of times we're missing half of the story here. So we got to take that into consideration. But I know you're getting these questions. So I'm curious how you would respond to those. So let's start with question number one. How much did your mental health improve on TRT and how long did it take? Ooh, that's a good question. Exponentially, this is such a perfect setup to all the stuff I usually talk about. So for people who've seen me speak before, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I like the sound of the record, so I'm going to keep it broken. I've been on TRT now for, I think, seven years, six or seven years. And I like to say that there's three milestones when it comes to TRT. There's the weeks, there's the months, and then there's the years. In terms of how my mental health changed on TRT, I definitely... A lot of the stuff that I speak about online is stuff that I learned from experience. So I'm just further down the road that everyone else is walking down. And I didn't know shit when I was walking down that road either. So I learned the hard way. And and I hope that people can learn from my mistakes, but also just not have to go through the same thing I went through. And I definitely expected TRT to do the work on me or do the work for me for the first couple of years, for sure. There was definitely a point where I was like, well, I've been walking around with like giga chad level testosterone levels for the last couple of years and i still feel like an absolute total wimp on the inside why i was annoyed at that it made me frustrated because i didn't understand and what i realized was that testosterone in the way that it works neurologically which is one of my main areas of interest in it in terms of how it works in the brain it doesn't really androgenize you in terms of like masculinize your psyche per se past a certain point what it does is it builds the foundation for your mental health and your neurotransmission to operate properly. So it basically fixes the foundation of how your body and your brain works, but it doesn't change who you are 
inherently what changes who you are and then thus your mental health is what you do or what you have done for the past X amount of time. So the thing that really allowed me to change my mental health and, and improve my mental health to the point that I can help others with their mental health is I adopted all the habits and all the processes and all the routines that I wish I had adopted a year or two prior. And that was the big thing that changed for me was the consistent application of being basically having the habits and doing the things that the best version of myself would do and doing that consistently over time ultimately allowed me to feel internally the way I wanted to feel, which as someone who used to teach mindfulness, what I value is feeling and we will always have fears. We will always have anxieties. We'll always wake up some days more depressed than others because that's life. It doesn't matter what your testosterone levels are. You're still a human, but it made me feel calm. It made the voice inside my head not be so critical and so deprecating and so fearful. And it allowed me to be confident in myself. But what allowed me to be confident was the fact that I'd spent a few years deliberately building competence. And that's a quote from Jordan Peterson is competence builds confidence. So I would say that my mental health has improved dramatically. You know, when I was in my early 20s, I was in a touring band. I was doing digital marketing, did a couple of different things at uni, running my own business. From the outside, I looked quite good. But on the inside, I always felt very afraid and always felt very timid and always felt very anxious about nothing, just afraid of everything, just learned fear. TRT gave me the foundation to be able to put the practices in to become the guy who overcame that, but it took years. So I would say that my mental health has improved exponentially beyond where it was before to the point that I wouldn't even recognize my psyche beforehand, but it took a good five or six years of intentional work. And the first two years, I expected that work to happen by default, and it most certainly did not. So you taught mindfulness. I've heard you talk about this a little bit, but I want to expand upon it here because it's so important and it's something that people kind of just want to skip over. It's kind of like the stretching at the end of a workout. People's like, oh, I don't really need that. I just keep plowing through. I'm a Pilates instructor. I used to own a, a Pilates in a, a yoga studio. So I don't feel that way. I find it very important to my overall health and my mental being. But a lot of people don't fully understand that. So maybe let's expand upon your experience with mindfulness and, and how you taught that and the importance. Sure. So I used to teach secular, so non-religious based meditation and mindfulness workshops for parents and teachers to be able to teach it to kids. And the vision of the, the organization that I was working for, I was also doing some marketing for the organization, was that mindfulness was a critical skill for children to have. I think what's very important about mindfulness is recognizing mindfulness as a skill. And just like if a child can't tie their shoes, we don't assume that there's something wrong with the child. We just assume the child hasn't been taught how to tie their shoes or maybe they need to be taught a couple of times. I still tie mine with bunny ears. I, I think that's a fine way to tie your shoes, but you have to learn the skills. And some of us are better at tying our shoes than others from the bat. I, I wasn't. And some of us are better at mindfulness than others. And some of us suck, but we can all learn the skill. And what mindfulness is, is mindfulness is the mental skill of attention. It's being able to focus your mind on what you want to focus it on doesn't mean that your mind will not race off. It doesn't mean that you won't get distracted. It doesn't mean that you won't think unproductive or unhelpful thoughts sometimes. But mindfulness is the skill of being able to focus your mind on what you want to focus it on. And it's kind of like getting strong from going to the gym. You go to the gym, you know, you pick up the weights and you put them back down so that you can be strong in day-to-day -day life or look a certain way or carry in all the groceries in one trip. 
And the reason why you go to meditate, kind of like going to the gym for your brain, is so that you can have the skill of mindfulness day to day, which is where you're able to, one, choose what you want to focus your attention on. A huge amount of issues that guys face that I work with, including myself in the past, is we lack the skill and the ability to do the work that we don't want to do to achieve the outcome that we want to achieve. Sometimes that gets diagnosed as inattentive ADHD. A lot of the time it's just a lack of discipline and it's a lack of the skill of saying, I don't want to do this, this sucks. But part of being an adult is having to sometimes do work that you don't want to do to get the outcomes that you want. Difficult skill, but can be done. The other thing that's very important for mindfulness, though, is being able to regulate your emotions. And this is something that I see a lot of people lacking, both children and adults. And a lot of the time when we're not able to regulate our emotions, we end up saying or doing things that we regret after the fact because we didn't create a a space between the stimulus and the response. And when you are able to do that, you're able to consciously practice sympathy and empathy, which are important for relationships. But you're also able to override your impulses, such as saying you're going to get up at 4.30 the next morning to go and do that workout, and then the alarm goes off, and then you go, oh, fuck that, snooze, done. Mindfulness isn't going to make you not hit the snooze button, but it's going to make you still get up after you hit it because that's what you said you would do and you're going to keep your word. And I think when you're wanting to make a change in your life, whether it's wanting to improve your relationships or improve your discipline or improve your physical health or whatever it is you want to do, you have to be able to exert your willpower. You have to be able to say, I'm going to do this and then do that. And the way that you follow through on that, potentially when it also comes down to delaying gratification, is being able to keep your word to yourself and being able to override your impulses. And this is a very important part of developing executive function, which is what the prefrontal cortex is for. And it seems that a lot of people in terms of how they've been brought up, whether it's from a very distracted culture, overstimulated with electronics, smash full of junk food, hormone dysfunction, all these things layered, a lot of people seem to have issues with executive function. And I think that if you have issues with executive function over the trajectory of your life, you could end up in circumstances or derailing the trajectory of where you're heading to basically ending up somewhere that you don't want to be. So I think mindfulness is very important to be able to one, have a good relationship with that voice inside your head. There's nothing worse than laying down at the end of the day and that voice inside your head's just torturing you. But the important part of that is taking a look and going, well, why is this so critical? What, what's wrong here? And actually sitting down with yourself and going through what you're thinking, why you're feeling, where all this is coming from and getting to the bottom of it. And then learning to put that shit aside and just focusing on the here and now so that when you are having dinner with your wife or you're watching a movie with a friend or you're doing something you enjoy or you're literally sniffing the flowers or or walking through nature, you have the ability to actually put all that shit aside and just enjoy the present moment because otherwise life passes you by because you're always just worried about shit and you never get to enjoy yourself. So I think that it's extremely important for all aspects of mental health and it's ultimately the foundation to be able to be a conscious, productive human being. I'm really, really worried about this in children because of the way YouTube and TikTok is geared towards, well, everybody at this point, but towards our children with these 30-second quick clips. I mean, it's training these brains to just to be constantly stimulated. Next topic, next topic, next video, new people, new. And I'm like, man, these kids are really, really going to struggle to be present and to learn how to be mindful and meditate and all these things. I mean, I'm the parent that makes my child... I have the aura ring. We both wear them. He's 12. But I make him do a meditation at night before bed because I'm like, no, we you have got to slow the mind down. I mean, you're playing sports, you're at school, you're on tick. 
well, he doesn't have TikTok, but you're watching YouTube videos, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We've got it. The mind has got to quiet itself. So are there any apps that you recommend or like easier ways for people to be able to kind of ease in to learn mindfulness and meditation? Yeah, absolutely. So I look at meditation kind of like training in the gym. It's like if someone's, if you've never gone and lifted weights, please get a personal trainer because otherwise you'll just learn things wrong and you hurt yourself. I don't think you'll hurt yourself by meditating without a PT. You might just get bored. But kind of like what you mentioned with stretching and Pilates, I think mindfulness is such a good example with that because if you stretch and it feels horrible and you suck at stretching, that's not a signal to go, oh, stretching's not for you. That's to say you need to do more of this. That's why it feels horrible. Meditation's the same. So it's important to have a guide to teach you the skills because focusing your mind on nothing is very simple but very difficult. It requires you sitting down doing nothing it's free or the app will cost whatever, but it's a free process, but it's very boring, which makes it very difficult, especially if you've never been still with your mind before. So the best thing to do is to find a narrator who doesn't piss you off. If you get two or three minutes into it and you go, fuck, this person's voice is annoying. Not for you. Try something else. So you've got to just find a, med- a voice that you like. I like Headspace, Andy from Headspace. Some people say it's too wafty or it's too, I like that it's wafty. So I like Headspace. Some people like Waking Up by Sam Harris. It's not really for me. It's much more logical, straight to the point, neuroscience, time to meditate. For people who don't like Headspace, they often really like Waking Up. So I recommend getting the trial of both of those. And if you've got kids, there's an app called Smiling Minds. That's a really good one as well because it's got programs for children. The other thing that's really helpful, one is because as soon as I say it's a Navy SEAL thing, all the guys are like, oh, fuck yeah, I'll do that. There's a skill called box breathing. And if you search on YouTube, like box breathing, there'll be like animations, which is like breathe in for five, hold for five, breathe out for five, hold for five, which will slow your breath down to three breaths per minute. And that's like a scientifically validated way to drop into the parasympathetic nervous system as quickly as possible. So that's a way to do it for guys who are like, I want the quickest, fastest, most efficient way to learn this skill. That's a good way to do it as well. But I think the best intro to meditation. I used to do this in workshops. I've probably done it 50 times in my life. And it's great for people who've done it a bunch of times, never done it before, used to do it. And they're coming back to it. You jump on YouTube and you search Alan Watts, 15 minute guided meditation. And it's like an explanation of meditation while you're meditating to it. It's a great one. Really good. Just click the one that says no ads. Some genius put an ad in the middle of a 15-minute guided meditation. So don't click that one. (laughs) But that one's phenomenal. So Alan Watts guided meditation, box breathing on YouTube or Headspace or waking up. They're my recommendations or smiling minds for kids. Okay, awesome. Those are great to know. I love giving the listeners like tangible takeaways so they can actually put some of this stuff into place. So I'll also link those apps and stuff in the show notes to make it easy for people to follow. And I'll try to find that YouTube video too, so I can attach that for everybody. So, okay, moving on to another question in the TRT group from a guy. It says, my libido is non-existent and it has been for years. I'm on every other day sub-Q injections any idea why I have no libido? Okay, this is a great question as an example. It's a terrible question from actually being able to answer it, but it's a great great question because more than 50% of questions online involve the dude's dick, whether it's how hard it is, <laughs> how much semen he makes, how quickly the semen comes out, how it feels when he touches it. It's just, that's what it is. And I understand that. But the problem with questions related to someone's individual penis 
is that sexual function comes last in the overall hierarchy of how the human body works. Reproduction comes last, survival comes first. So in the cascade of everything in terms of diet, lifestyle, mental health, relationships, fear around intimacy, previous you know performance anxiety and sexual you know, performance issues, all of this stuff is going to play into libido and sexual function. So it's one of those very difficult things to answer, which is that you have to get to the root cause of what's going on. And the way that I think is the most efficient and best way to get to the root cause is comprehensive blood work and someone who's in a role similar to myself. Like There's a great bunch of people who can do this all over the world who will go through your blood work, go through your diet, your lifestyle, you know, get to know you a little bit and try to form an understanding of where this is coming from. The biggest ones that I see for why someone's libido doesn't work is the simple one is hormones being off. But a lot of the time the hormones are trash because they're trashed for a reason. A lot of the time people have terrible hormone profiles because they should have terrible hormone profiles because they're eating tons of junk food, they're not exercising, and they're drinking and using a bunch of drugs. You can't feel fantastic and treat your body like crap. You can't have poor physical health and optimal mental and sexual health. That is unrealistic expectations. The world does not work like that. So that's a big one. And if someone's on TRT, sometimes they also have deficiencies in other hormones, particularly things like DHEA or sometimes pregnenolone or even thyroid. And they will also impact someone's libido massively because testosterone is marketable and sexy. Selling a dude testosterone is like selling a thirsty guy a glass of water. It's like, cool, testosterone, great. But stuff like DHEA, thyroid, pregnenolone, they're not as marketable, they're not as cool, but DHEA is just as important for libido as testosterone is. So making sure that you don't have other hormone deficiencies, because if you have a deficiency in one hormone, it doesn't mean that you have deficiencies in other hormones, but it means there's a good chance you might. So foundational stuff, that's it. The other one is like SSRIs, antipsychotics, sleeping medications, anti-anxiety drugs like benzodiazepines, opioid use, all of this stuff will mess with your sexual function in a myriad of ways. Oh, finasteride. Yeah, if you're using finasteride, then that's an even bigger one. That's a huge one. Topical dutasteride, oral finasteride, whatever, even minoxidil topically or orally will mess it up too. So drugs is a big one, including prescription medications. Alcohol is another one. Unfortunately, people need to wrap their head around even a few drinks a week for a lot of people will mess with your overall health, especially long term. Getting rid of binge drinking, doing more exercise, actually having good cardiovascular fitness, all these things are really important. And then sometimes there'll be this contention and they'll go, well, that might be true. I eat too much junk food. I don't exercise. I drink a bunch of booze. But before I started TRT, I didn't have any of these problems. I'll go, why is that? It's a very fair, good question to ask. And we don't have a research paper to explain exactly why this is. But my theory on this, which is what I spoke about at Silverback and what I've spoken about in the group a lot, is that when you hijack your endocrine system, which is what you're doing with TRT, you're basically going, look, hey, buddy, you're not producing the amount of testosterone that I believe that you should be. And sometimes they're correct in saying that. Sometimes they're way off. So I'm going to bring the testosterone levels up to what I deem to be optimal. So if you're an obese 45-year-old alcoholic who's never been to the gym and you put the testosterone levels of healthy 21-year-old athlete into your body, and you wonder why it doesn't quite work the way that you want it to, that's the reality of putting a sports car engine into a Suzuki Swift that needs a service. It is not going to work like a sports car is. Why is that? Mechanistically, exactly the enzymatic pathways for why that doesn't work. 
I'm not sure, but it's unnatural. So my biggest recommendation for guys is who are troubleshooting such a broad topic is take a look at the testosterone levels that you're injecting into your body and ask yourself, what would I need to be doing day to day, week to week, month to month to make those levels naturally if I could and do that. And if you do that, a lot of the time that just means calling yourself on all your shit which is generally drugs, alcohol, junk food, and not doing enough exercise. That's the big ones. And if you fix those things and understand and go, hey, look, you're just not getting away with the shit that you're trying to get away with, and that's the reality of it, and that's why your dick's not working. Sometimes that can be a difficult pill to swallow, but it's a cheaper pill, and it's an overall healthier pill than all the other pills that they could try to take off Amazon or iHerb or whatever fucking libido booster, Tonga Ali bullshit that you're going to buy. And you'll actually probably fix a bunch of other problems in the process as well. So that's my biggest recommendation for guys is, and I've got a whole lecture called uh, Your Brain on Testosterone and the War and Masculinity Part 2, which is on YouTube, which is a full tangible breakdown of these are all the exact things. And my, my big piece of advice to guys is like, if you're in doubt, just do all the stuff your grandma told you to do or that she should have told you to do. Go to bed earlier, eat more real food you cook at home, stop playing so many video games, go outside, talk to some girls like those kind of things are really helpful good advice for situations like this when you're too much up in your head and sometimes guys like if your libido is low and you've got a stressful life and you're busy and you've got a family and you've got a career and your health's a bit off track you're not going to have the raging libido that you had when you were 16 and first found out how your dick worked like it's not going to happen because you have the responsibilities of being an adult and that's also something that guys need to understand is well what should my libido be and wanting to jerk off all day, every day is not a healthy adult mental pathway. Yeah. I <laughs> well, I want to ask you about the comments you made around drugs and alcohol. I see people uh, celebrate or, or discuss their sobriety on social media a lot. So they're not using alcohol, but they are using things like edibles or marijuana. What is your take on that with trying to live a healthy lifestyle and achieve these things that these guys in these Facebook groups are trying to achieve? I have experience to speak on cannabis, only in countries where it has been legal, of course. I love cannabis. I love weed. And it breaks my heart to say that you can't smoke weed all the time and be healthy. Sorry. I, I worked that out the hard way. You absolutely can't. If you could, I would be doing it. <laughs> it's the reality of the way the THC works. This is something that we all need to understand. And I think there's a couple of layers to this is that THC, to use the example of, of cannabis, THC is an exogenous cannabinoid, which primarily works on the CB1 receptor. And when you put THC into the body, whether you smoke it, take an edible, use a, a tincture, you know, whatever you want to use. And obviously it's better not to combust and inhale things. So, you know, it's lesser of evils to use orally, but what you're doing is you're taking in a exogenous cannabinoid, kind of like taking in exogenous testosterone, and you're dysregulating your own endocannabinoid production, which is the sciencey, fancy way of saying what goes up must come down. If you get high, you're going to get low. And the problem is if you're constantly dysregulating this thermostat that your body likes to keep you in, which is what the endocannabinoid system does, it's very important for maintaining a whole bunch of processes in the body, which is what CBD supports, is that you will essentially throw your body into a state of chronic dysregulation, which will impact things like cortisol, GABA, prolactin, your immune system, your digestion, so many different factors. But a lot of the time, particularly with things like cannabis, it can be quite an insidious, slow thing where guys can be like, look, it's not affecting me negatively. 
it's a net positive overall it's something that's good for me and it's like okay we'll take 90 days off it and see if you still feel that way and a lot of the time they'll take 90 days off they'll feel massively better and then they'll start using it again and go oh that's what that was doing so i think one of the most important things is that if you are having a relationship with drugs and alcohol and you are of the mindset that you're the outlier you're the exception to the rule you're the you're the snoop dog you're you're the guy who can have it all day every day and still be high functioning pun intended Prove me wrong. Cut it out for 90 days and see if you are actually as good as you were on day 89 and 90 when you go back to using it on day one. And that can be the uncomfortable experience of learning the reality of it, which is that you just can't get away with it. And I've always really liked cannabis personally because you know I was a musician when I was younger. I do a lot of creative work. I find that it helps me in a lot of ways with what I'm trying to achieve, but it also really impacts recovery. It impacts performance in the gym. It is estrogenic or anti-androgenic in different ways and how that has been how that exactly works in the body we're not 100 percent sure but we do know it does impact with androgen receptor binding and the big thing that i found with it as well as a lot of the guys who i work with who do use cannabis regularly is that it can impact a lot of your long-term goal setting and i think one of the most detrimental things about using substances for escapes whether they're uppers downers psychedelics disassociatives whatever you want to pick pick your poison is that you're choosing to numb or escape your reality and that's time that you should be spending on improving your reality so it's not something that you want to escape from and i think that that's the big harsh wake-up call that we need to have is that one we shouldn't be wanting to run away from ourselves and the world that we've built around us we need to fix that But two, the time that we're spending running away and pacifying ourselves is the time that we're supposed to spend fixing the problem. It's a bad trade, and it's a trade that compounds and gets worse over time because the further you get into this, the more you become reliant on going, oh, well, I feel fantastic when I'm high, or I feel relaxed and chilled out when I have a couple of drinks at the end of the day. It's going, well, if you actually built a life that was fantastic when you were sober or you built a mindset that was calm and relaxed without alcohol – You wouldn't need these vices, which particularly with alcohol are horrifically associated with diseases of aging. So when it comes to all substances of intoxication, I think we're better off without them. And I think that if people are going to use things like cannabis or other psychedelics, I would put cannabis in the psychedelic category, is to use them in the minimal effective dose, potentially with supervision if needed, and use them with intention. But using any drugs regularly is going to impact your baseline state. And I think what we want to optimize in this space, or what I believe we should want to optimize, is optimize our baseline state every day. Not how do I feel after I take $20 worth of supplements off Amazon and do my two-hour morning routine and all this kind of stuff. No, how do you feel day-to-day, hour-to-hour, week-to-week when you're just doing your thing? And I think that if you spend the time improving all aspects of your physical mental health your biological health getting proper health coaching all these different things we can build ourselves into people who are living and engaging in a world that we don't want to alter our state of consciousness because we're good i actually did hear that snoop dog stopped smoking i saw that that's how you know i don't know what's going on I'm like what happened here so next question is I think you and I both responded to this gentleman on this Facebook group, but it's a good question. And we get a similar question frequently. It's He says, when it comes to TRT, when is the point of no return? Approximately speaking, of course, I understand every human is different, but I'd like to gather a consensus. The point of no return is 
when you had hypogonadism and you needed TRT in the first place? I think that's a cop-out answer because it's not the answer <laughs> that he was looking for. But most of the answers that people were looking for are just pacifying insecurity or they're dealing with unrealistic hypotheticals that don't mean anything. So the whole question around how will using exogenous testosterone impact my natural production? Good question. We don't know that much on this because every study that I'm aware of that's been done on giving guys testosterone for a period of time has showed a 100% recovery rate after they withdraw it. They don't do a PCT. They don't do anything. They just stop giving the treatment and then their levels bounce back to exactly where they were before. But we know in practice from working with heaps of guys who've done just that, but have also a lot of the time dabbled in non-bioidentical anabolic steroids or very high doses of testosterone that they do a PCT or they don't do a PCT and they end up six to 12 months down the line with like half the levels they had before. And I think the age that you hijack the system is a factor. I think your baseline state of health is a factor, but I don't think that's what we're talking about when it comes to TRT. And I think a lot of guys are coming into the TRT space And again, I understand why they're coming into the space because they're going, well, I may not have deficient testosterone. I may not have medical hypogonadism, but I think I would feel better and live a better quality of life if I had double or triple the testosterone levels I have now. I don't disagree with that, but I think that that's a point that people need to make the consideration of, which is that if you are starting TRT, it should be because you do have medically indicated hypogonadism. And sometimes the levels that people actually become hypogonadal relative to the reference range are like in the middle of the range. So a lot of the time guys are going, oh, well, my testosterone levels aren't that low. It's like, bro, they actually are. And that's why you feel the way you feel. But the thing that people need to consider when when you start TRT is that you are hijacking your natural testosterone production. You are shutting down your natural system. And the longer you do that for, the more of a risk that you run that when you stop doing the treatment, your levels are going to come back worse than they were before you started. Now, if your levels are shot to shit and circling the drain, and if you come back at 50% of shit and you're just a shitter, then it's probably not going to be a discernible difference. If you felt absolutely fucking horrendous before and you come back with lower levels, you're probably just going to feel as bad because you were below a threshold where you needed an intervention. But If you're in a situation where your levels aren't actually low, you just want them to be higher because that's what you want. Firstly, look at earning those higher levels yourself. You should only be looking at this conversation if you've completely tapped out everything from a diet and lifestyle perspective because you're going to have to do all those things anyway to tolerate the testosterone at the end of the day, whether you like it or not. Otherwise, you'll end up crying in the groups and I'll tell you the same thing. Well, after round and round the hamster wheel with this guy, his T level when he started was 150. So for some reason, so I was like shaking my head with this guy. I'm like, you're worried about your T level coming back lower than 150? It's already shit, <laughs> like you said. It's like If it comes back at seven, like a 50%, you're not really going to notice that much of a difference. It's like if I hit you in the face with a wooden block or a baseball bat, it's still going to really fucking hurt. Like it's going to be past the threshold point of pain. This is a, a really big point that guys need to understand is that I do understand because when you have low testosterone, you're going to be less confident, you're going to be more risk adverse, and you're going to have difficulty making commitments and decisions. I get it. It's one of the most difficult things to take the plunge when you're in a hypoandrogenic state. I have all the empathy in the world. But a lot of the time making difficult decisions in life and making a commitment does involve taking the plunge. And sometimes we just need to sack up and look at things logically. And ideally, 
This is where it's super important to have someone in your court who is a practitioner or a provider who actually has your best interest at heart and actually knows what they're doing. Because if you go to someone who's just selling you testosterone, they're selling you the panacea. They're going to say, well, this will solve all your problems. It won't cause any issues. And you should buy this testosterone from us. But if you can have someone who can look at it and give you that feedback and go, dude, don't even worry about it because you've got literally nothing to lose with a testosterone of 150, then it becomes less of a actual tangible problem and just more of a anxiety and insecurity that needs to be coached and needs to be soothed and reassurance needs to be provided. And that's totally normal and that's totally part of what happens. But if you're in a situation where your testosterone is like 350, 400, 450, and you're not sure if it's coming from the test or if it's because you're not sleeping properly or you're taking this or whatever, understand that if you shut down your natural production and it comes back lower later and you've therefore created an acquired dependence on testosterone, you really want to make sure that you needed that before you did that. And that's why it's so important that guys check your thyroid, check your adrenal hormones, check your diet, check your lifestyle. I've had so many guys who come to me and they're like, I started testosterone, my levels are great, but I still feel like shit. And they had Hashimoto's thyroiditis the whole time. And they're like, well, did I need to, we fix their thyroid, they feel great. And they go, well, did I need TRT to begin with? And it's like, well, you got it now, maybe, maybe not. And that's the tricky thing is like, if you've started this, you've made the commitment to do it. Can you pull the ripcord after eight to 12 weeks or 16 weeks and recover your levels? Probably, but should you do it under the guise that you can? No. I will say with us seeing, you know, thousands of men at this point, it does seem like, I think you bring up a good point with it depends on when they started, how old they were, and if they did performance enhancing drugs, SARMs, all these things when they were younger. But like the average guy that's coming to see us, if they decide that to get off of it, it does seem like they go pretty close to baseline or maybe there's some slight decline with age related if they've been on it for a couple of years. But I have to say, it doesn't seem like we're seeing like, oh, they started at 400 and then they come off of it. And now their testosterone stays at the 100 the rest of their life. That doesn't seem like what we're seeing in clinical experience. Yeah, and it's definitely not something I see either. And I think that it can happen. I think there's a minority chance that it could happen, but I think it's a pretty big risk to take. So that's why I like to tell guys that they're like, look, can I do a trial of it? And I'm like, I wouldn't frame it as a trial. Can you pull the ripcord if something happens? Yeah, but you should go into this with the premise of, yeah, it is a lifelong thing. I guess the question that we would see less examples of this because it just simply doesn't happen, but The question that would be interesting is if someone's been on for, let's say, five years and they haven't used HCG for that period either, the testicles have been dormant, what kind of levels are they going to come back with? And I think that that's that's kind of the question that these guys want to know. Is it like a first three, four, six months is a safe spot? And then once you cross a year, two, three years, then it's like a nomad zone? I don't really know, but I would argue that five years versus five months would have some degree of difference in natural production, but what degree that's going to be, guinea pig and send me an email, but I wouldn't recommend it. (laughs) Okay. So question number four, this is my last question out of the group here. It says, I have estrogen dominance and my testosterone to estrogen ratio is out of balance. I know this group always says not to use anastrozole to block estrogen, but how do you suggest I lower my estrogen to get a more balanced ratio? Without sounding politically incorrect, because these days that's like the worst thing you can possibly do. (laughs) I would look at their profile picture and look at how overweight they are, because that is most likely going to be an obesity problem. For some reason, people are very, very confrontational when you bring up that it's because of their 
multiple tens to 20 kilograms of excess body fat they're carrying that's causing their problems. But I like to call a spade a spade. So firstly, there is no testosterone estrogen ratio that should be correct. Anytime someone makes a comment like that, I can just feel Jordan Grant's blood pressure just start to fucking spike. <laughs> if you've done a podcast with Jordan, Jordan will have said this so much better than I, I can say it. So I'm just going to quote him and butcher his words. But Estrogen is a paracrine hormone, which means that the amount that we're looking in the serum is a spillover. It's not a indicator of what's traveling around the use of the receptor like testosterone is. So the thing that I found, that one of the interesting things about working primarily in Australia is that when I run a blood test for testosterone, I get a full sex hormone panel just by default. So I've looked at the same amount of estrogen numbers as I've looked at testosterone. Every time I've looked at test, I've got estrogen on there as well. What I have found is that Estrogenic symptoms do not correlate with serum estrogenic levels. So to use the numbers that are in the US, I have seen more estrogenic symptoms, and this is assuming that we're holding testosterone constant. I've seen more estrogenic symptoms in the 30s than I have in the 70s or 80s or beyond 100. Now, if you've got an estrogen level of 100 and you've got a testosterone level of 200 and you're morbidly obese, then yeah, you've got a problem. But Estrogen is a symptom of that because estrogen is anti-inflammatory, like prolactin and cortisol. A lot of the time, people look at cortisol and they go, oh, my cortisol is high. That's why I'm stressed. No, your cortisol is high because you're stressed. Cortisol is anti-inflammatory. Cortisol is your body trying to put the fire out. Estrogen is the same thing. There's a reason why excess body fat makes aromatase and makes more estrogen because it's anti-inflammatory. It's trying to keep you fucking alive. So looking at the situation and going, well, I don't like my blood work. I don't like the estrogen number. I'm not going to lose weight. I'm not going to fix up my diet and lifestyle. I'm just going to nuke the estrogen with an aromatase inhibitor. That may fix some of your short-term problems day to day. But if you get 5, 10, 20 years down the line, I mean, we're going to find out what's going to happen because we don't have any data on this. Like We have no idea. And I really don't encourage guys to do that because it's, that's going to be a fuck around and find out situation and it's not going to be a fun thing to find out about. So in situations like this, the big ones, and I've got a lecture on YouTube called Troubleshooting TRT and I've got a second book called Beyond TRT, which kind of unpacks all this in a very surmised fashion. But if you are having excess estrogenic symptoms, there's a couple of things to look at. And I'm just going to put that in inverted commas before Jordan has an aneurysm. <laughs> One thing to look at is excess body fat, thyroid and liver. Those are the big things. T3 is an internal regulator of aromatase. Insulin resistance causes excess estrogen production as well. But the health of the liver is very important for not only metabolizing and clearing endogenous estrogens like estriol, estrone, estradiol, but is also very important for clearing environmental estrogens. And I think these are the big problems that a lot of guys are dealing with. It's all the xenoestrogens from the plastics, pollutions, and pesticides that we're just not equipped to handle. So focus on optimizing the health of the liver. Focus on optimizing your thyroid function. And the way that you optimize your thyroid function is through diet and reducing body fat, which will also improve insulin sensitivity. A lot of the time, and I'm not making pharmaceutical recommendations for these guys, but these guys need metformin, not anastrozole, if they're going to make a short-term intervention with something, if they're going to use a pharmaceutical agent. So... The main thing to look at is if you're looking at your estradiol level, look at your waistline. And if you've got more than 15% body fat on you, then that's the thing that you need to work on. And the other thing that guys need to look at from the other side of the coin is if you are psychologically not feeling masculine enough, 
Nuking your estrogen with an astrozole is not the solution for that. If you don't have the internal masculine characteristics and traits like confidence or a healthy level of aggression or a healthy level of drive and charisma and all these things that you feel like you should have, it's probably not because you're a genetic over-aromatizer. It's probably because you've only had optimal testosterone levels in your body for a matter of weeks and months and you were hypergonadal for years and you developed your identity and your inner monologue around that state. It's not going to come in and hit the reset button. And when I speak to guys about their estrogenic symptoms, a lot of the time they're more psychological than physiological. So I think that can also be a factor to look at is, well, what am I actually perceiving as estrogenic symptoms? And if I'm not feeling like enough of a man, whatever that means to me, maybe the solution isn't to pharmaceutically nuke my estrogen because that's not going to solve the problem. It's to look more into, well, if my body is not in an overall optimal state of health, what could be going on here? And the biggest driver, like my friend Jay Campbell, is the, he's been hammering this home for probably close to a decade now, is insulin resistance. A lot of the time, these negative estrogenic symptoms are symptoms of insulin resistance. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I think you guys did a good video on that. If I recall, you and Jay did. I'll try to find that and attach that in the show notes as understanding estrogen dominance is actually insulin resistance. I want to ask you about SARMs. We get questions from patients pretty regularly on wanting to take them or have taken them in the past, wanting us to recommend them, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to know your experience with SARMs and what you've seen with the clients that you deal with that have used these in the past. I will speak cautiously on SARMs because I'm not a SARMs expert and I don't want to say something technical about what they are or aren't and have some SARM goblins in the the comments eating me alive because I, I don't like speaking on areas that I'm not confident on. But I think that the concept of Psalms has merit in the future. I think the Psalms that we have at the moment are, they haven't got it right yet. It's like they're, you know, baking cookies and they haven't quite got the ratio of the ingredients right yet. But I think the concept of a Psalm could have some kind of medical application. Now, what that application is, I don't know, not my field, potentially for things like how they use oxandrolone for burns having something that can actually prevent muscle wastage but not be androgenic in a clinical setting, that could be fantastic. And then from a muscle building standpoint for professional bodybuilders, could that be something that could produce less side effects in going into a super physiological territory than excess testosterone or non-bioidentical antigens? Perhaps there could be merit to that. The problem with the SARMs at the moment and that SARMs is a category is that one, there's nowhere near enough safety or efficacy data in humans to they cause side effects. But the main thing that we're putting into the body is we're putting in something that's activating the androgen receptor, but it's not doing all the other stuff that testosterone does. So I like to come back to, and I know it's not a perfect example. It's it's more of a explanation for why I'm not a fan of the non-bioidentical androgens, like anabolic steroids, is I kind of bring it back to like female birth control is that if we're looking at like a progestin, which is agonizing the progesterone receptor, but it's not doing all the same things that progesterone does, but it's also not metabolizing into all the different metabolites of progesterone and then having all the balancing effects of that, what are the downstream consequences of that over time? We don't really know. And this is my concern around using antigens that aren't bioidentical testosterone, is when you're not getting the appropriate metabolization into 
estrogens and DHT and getting the balancing effect of all these, the way that the body is intended to be, we don't really know what the consequences of that are going to be beyond an eight to 12 week controlled trial looking at one or two variables. And this is why I think when we're in a situation and I'm biased, I don't really work with like big professional, like Olympia bodybuilders, not my field, not my thing. I think if you're going to get into that, there is a degree of risk that you just have to accept. You're throwing caution to the wind. But when it comes to the sake of what I would call like a recreational athlete, someone who just wants to be healthy, fit, strong, and do these things, I think that once you go beyond optimizing a TRT dose to the optimal amount of testosterone that a healthy male should have, once you go beyond that into a supra-physiological territory of antigens, even if you are using bioidentical testosterone, you're going to be dysregulating a whole bunch of your body's systems. You're going to be overstimulating your central nervous system. You're going to be impacting recovery. You're going to be impacting digestion. You're going to be impacting a whole lot of things because you're putting in more than your body can handle of something that is critical to the way that your body is governed. So I like to focus more on what can we do nutritionally and what can we do training-wise. A lot of the time, guys are reaching for SARMs and steroids before they even get a personal trainer, which is ridiculous. So you want to make sure that your training intensity is dialed in. You want to make sure your recovery is dialed in. You want to make sure that your programming is dialed in, all of these things. And a lot of the time what I see is guys are looking for SARMs and steroids because they're not wanting to invest the money, time, effort, and intensity in these things. And they're looking for the biohack. They're looking for the shortcut. And it might work a little bit. Like if you pump a bunch of gear into someone who's eating averagely and training averagely, they'll get bigger, but they won't get healthier. And they probably won't feel as good as they can feel. So... I have my three C's natural cycle that I call it, which I recommend for my clients who are wanting to use something like Psalms or adding in a bit of Anavar or Proviron or Primobolin or whatever they want to add to their TRT, which is you get all those things in check and then you add in one to two grams of, of carnitine tartrate, five grams to 10 grams of creatine monohydrate and 500 milligrams of phosphatidylcholine, your three Cs. So you've got androgen receptor upregulation, you've got 5-alpha reductase upregulation, and you've got supporting elimination of xenoestrogens. And then the other one to add in, which doesn't fit into my three Cs, so it pisses me off, but three <laughs> Cs plus vitamin D, 10,000 units of vitamin D. We know that that's extremely positive for androgen receptor function. And if guys can do that and eat an extra 50 grams of protein a day, and eat good quality food that their body digests, sleep well, and train hard. I have seen guys get absolutely stellar results from that with TRT as the foundation versus adding in Osterine or whatever sign they're adding in or adding in a bit of sports TRT or whatever they're calling it. But they also feel better when they do this and they learn how to support their body getting to where they want to go. And I really like this idea of let's work with the body, not on the body, and let's not trade off having to pay back consequences in the future right. for stuff that we want. Exactly. I mean, this is about health optimization. This is not about what you look and shredded at the beach. We want overall health optimization for sure, not taking shortcuts to get there. We're already approaching our hour. This time has flown by, but there were two supplements that I wanted to ask you about. So maybe you want to briefly talk about both of them or pick one. It was melatonin and omega because you put out some good content around those two topics. So I'll let you choose or if you want to try to do both. I'll do both. I got all the time. Well, depends if you want to hear me ramble. <laughs> I just finished up writing a couple of chapters on my next book for these so I can, they're fresh. So I'm very big on omega-3 supplementation, and this has become controversial in the recent years on the interwebs because 
some people, intelligent people, lump all polyunsaturated fats into the same category. And people can read the works of people like Paul Saladino, Ray Pete, to hear like a contra argument to what I'm presenting, which is that all omega-3s can oxidize in the body and become rancid and so on and so forth. But my counter argument to that is the thousands and thousands of studies showing the benefits of omega-3. And it is one of the most heavily studied molecules for just about every condition and ailment that we've ever seen and researched. And the way that I look at it, I'm 31, and I was brought up with fantastic parents who were indoctrinated into the post-industrial revolution diet model, which is that heart-healthy oils like sunflower oil and canola oil are fantastic for cooking, and feeding your kids a whole bunch of deep-fried shit isn't going to cause them any problems. I think that we've got a whole generation that was brought up on omega-6, very, very heavily laden food with minimal amounts of omega-3s. And I think that correcting that balance is one of the best things that we can do. I don't have a time machine. I can't undo the first 30 years of my life, but I can consciously choose what I'm going to do for the next 30. And I think that even when we look at people, like if you're eating the perfect clean diet and you cook everything yourself and you never eat out and everything is made yourself and you've been doing that for ages, you're sweet. Don't worry about it. But for the people who eat out every now and then and get a bit of this, get a bit of that, or haven't been eating perfectly their whole life, I think that omega-3s make a huge difference and, and something that Rhonda Patrick's talked about it. I think even Andrew Humans talked about it on a podcast as well, is that people aren't dosing these high enough, that they're dosing the equivalent of having like a fork full of salmon. So if you want to get the equivalent of like the omega-3 every day of having like a good amount of salmon, which is I'd call 150 to 250 grams, like if you look on your plate and go, yeah, that's a good amount of fatty fish to eat per day. You're looking at about two to three grams of combined EPA and DHA per day. The average fish oil soft gel has like maybe 300 milligrams. You need to take like 10 or 15 of those. So when people say, oh, omega-3 doesn't do anything, it's like, well, that's because you're having a fork full of salmon. Yeah, that's not going to do shit. But the studied doses tend to be one to three or two to four grams of combined EPA, DHA per day. So... For people who want the tangibles, I have done the biggest spreadsheet ever going through all the brands that aren't shit, eliminating for all the ones that are not tested for mercury. We want them in the triglyceride form. And then we want to find the ones that are not an astronomical ripoff because they're made in the clouds in Norway by Thor himself or something. <laughs> the best brand that I've found, no affiliation, is Sports Research. And they do a product called, and I've been recommending this for years, it's called Triple Strength Omega. One of those soft gels is one gram of combined EPA, DHA per soft gel. The Now Foods one, I think, is like 750. Other ones that say they're stronger, like 500. This one's a gram per soft gel. And there was a study, and I use that term very loosely, that suggested that all the fish oil that you buy is rancid. And you can read the study. You can read the abstract that flows around Reddit and YouTube. And the study is literally... Some dude went into GNC and bought like four bottles of fish oil that, that the guy behind the counter recommended and three quarters of them were rancid. All that study shows is that that GNC sells off fish oil. It doesn't extrapolate out at all, but it is still very important that you use high quality fish oil. If you're worried that your fish oil is rancid, bite it open and find out. And if it tastes like shit, then yeah, it's rancid. So never get budget fish oil. And if you're somewhere that's particularly hot or you travel a lot, look at krill oil because the astaxanthin in it will prevent it from oxidizing. 
Again, sports research make a great one. So I personally take four grams of EPA DHA per day from sports research. Comes in like a big 180 count bottle. Great product. If sports research want to hook me up, cool. (laughs) Omega-3 is fantastic because what they're doing in the body is they are balancing out all the pro-inflammatory effects of the heavily omega-6 laden diet that we've had for a long time. But I particularly find them useful for people who are dealing with chronic inflammatory conditions, things like autoimmune conditions, things like chronic injuries, even things like low-grade mental health issues like anxiety and depression. I find that all of these things can often benefit from people take things like curcumin, CBD oil, all these different anti-inflammatory supplements, baby aspirin, all these different things that people are trying. One of the best things that you can do is high-dose omega-3 fish oil that represents getting a good amount of healthy fatty fish in the diet. So that's one of my favorite ones. It's also a great intervention for hypertension as well. One of the first things people should look at for hypertension is what's your cardio like and what's your omega-3 to omega-6 ratio like. Fix those two things and you often won't need the blood pressure medication, but you'll also avoid just switching off the alarm bell that that high blood pressure is and you can potentially fix the issue. I also see triglyceride levels cut in half when guys use proper doses of of omega-3s as well. Very, very rare to see someone with elevated triglycerides who are using proper omega-3 supplementation. Now, when it comes to melatonin, I'm a big fan of melatonin personally. As someone who's got a couple of back injuries, melatonin is wonderful for me. I particularly like the combination of melatonin and glutathione together as two of the bodies or the two primary antioxidants in the body. I find that using glutathione, 500 milligrams of reduced oral glutathione, which is plenty bioavailable, you don't need to inject it. It just needs to be reduced or liposomal. And using that in combination with micronized melatonin, it needs to be micronized so that it will actually bypass the stomach and get absorbed in the gut. That will not only prevent a lot of the groggy, shitty feeling that people get when they take melatonin, the micronized version will actually also help them stay asleep because it will release gradually in the gut. So the way that you get micronized melatonin is you get it from the pharmacy, or if you want to buy it online, you search microactive, one word, and there's no E on the end of active, M-I-C-R-O-A-C-T-I-V. Life Extension make one that is 1.2 milligrams, and then there's a company called Quality of Life. They make one that's five milligrams. And what I tell people when it comes to trialing melatonin, some people only need a very small amount, like 0.1 of a milligram. If that's you, then stay with that. But If guys are wanting to try higher doses of melatonin for like antioxidant effects, I personally use 50, but I I worked up to it quite slowly, is buy the ones and buy the fives and work up by a milligram or two every few days to find the dose that allows you to sleep through the night and wake up feeling rejuvenated and recovered in the morning. And for a lot of guys, that dose could be five to 10 milligrams, but for plenty of guys, it could be one to three. But if you do have issues like bulging discs or injuries that cause you pain and discomfort when you're sleeping and you struggle to get comfortable, don't be surprised if you benefit from pushing melatonin up to 10, 20, 30, even 50 milligrams and beyond, because that can be something that does tend to reduce that inflammation while you're sleeping and allow you to actually rest and recover and sleep properly with those injuries. Oh, those are some good tips. Well, We came in basically right at an hour. David Lee, I appreciate your time. I'm going to attach all of this information or as much as I can that I can track down here into the show notes. If you have any questions, you can always email me at podcast.amystuttle.com and I'll attach Dave's Instagram and website and stuff like that. He puts out content on a regular basis that I think you guys would enjoy. So Dave, I appreciate your time today. 
Thank you for having me. Great conversation and looking forward to chatting further in the future. Awesome. Thank you, guys.